0: It's all produce driven and lots of people say that and it's, and, it's, and it's great, but we go and see the farms and we go and see the fish farms and oyster farms and all before anything goes on the menu, you know, because it's so important because we buy so much,
1: you know. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. There are venues that have become entrenched in the culinary history of a city that not only speak of a sense of place, but over the decades create amazing talent that go on to add further color to the city in their own venues. What's it like manning the ship of one of the most iconic venues of a major culinary city? Jason Stout is the executive chef of Stoke House in St Kilda, Melbourne. Jason, how are you? very well how are you good it's good to have you on the show you've got a pretty big responsibility it's the Stokehouse is such an icon of of melbourne what's it feel like sort of running the kitchen there
0: uh, i'm very lucky i feel very fortunate to work there um when frank approached me to come down to melbourne i uh, jumped at the chance for a few reasons but uh, mostly there's just like commitment to sustainability and obviously running an icon like I did Aria and then now I've done Stokehouse. I think it's, I'm very lucky.
1: Uh, tell us a bit about um, what you're doing there at the moment. I know it's been pretty turbulent the last couple of years, but what, what's the state of play with the Stokehouse?
0: Uh, so we really focus. we changed the direction a little bit and really owned seafood. I felt like when I moved to Melbourne, there was a couple of places owning seafood, but no one was really like truly screaming it from the rooftops um and coming from sydney like everyone is happy to eat seafood all the time get their hands dirty with prawns and stuff melbourne melbourne market's a little bit different um so really trying to get that going within melbourne because see like seafood in australia has got to be some of the best in the world you know um so
1: <laughs> It's interesting you say that um, Melbournians eat seafood a bit differently. If you, if you, were, if you were menuing in Sydney compared to, to Melbourne, like what sort of seafood do you sort of have on the menu in Melbourne that um, perhaps you might not in Sydney?
0: <laughs> oh, I don't think it's really – I think it's more like I, – I think a good example is peel and eat prawns, you know what I mean? Like you can't really put those on a menu or in a bar menu in Melbourne, I feel, like we tried a couple times. Um in just in the bar downstairs and um, it's, it just didn't really take people, you know, whereas I think you can do that in most bars in, in Sydney and people get all around it, you know what I mean? They, they, they eat it every Christmas and smash prawns with white bread and it's like a thing, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like part of the culture. So, it's, I don't know. It's just, I just felt like there was a standoffishness um, to seafood. In comparison, like they still eat seafood and they still eat very good seafood, just not as much, I'd say.
1: Tell us a little bit about the cookery of seafood. You, you've steered the Stokehouse to to go in that direction a bit more. Um, what's what's really important? Are there a couple of species that you really love cooking, and you can tell us about? Yeah, um, the way def- you cook.
0: Yeah, definitely. Like uh, well the the highlight we I really pushed at Stokehouse was the big seafood platter. Like it was kind of before its time in Melbourne and. Um, I really, really pushed that. So we just worked with uh, the locust platter. We use, we use clams. Like clams and Stokehouse have been kind of in business together for 30 years. You know, they built each other's businesses up. And um, so working closely with them, they kind of highlight the best fish of the day. And we take it. So like the seafood platter, we're using like the skull island prawns, which is such a good produce. At first, we we're using scarlet prawns um because they were, you know, overfished for so long until a couple of years ago and then John Sussman kinda gave it the green light that everyone can use, you know, scarlet prawns and like you know, you can just call John and say, Hey, what should I put on? And he tells me, you know what I mean? <laughs> so those are kind of the main things. But like on the seafood platter right now, we use, like marin is a very sustainable product, so um It's a farmed product and everyone kind of uses it, but it it is very sustainable. So, people should eat more of it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, bivalves, any kind of bivalve, I think people should be really eating a lot of bivalves, not only for like obviously nutrition, but all the like nutrition for the sea in a way, like they're like filters and they just do so much for the ocean. You know, everyone should eat more oysters. That's 100% like dozen oysters per person per day you know what i mean because we can just make so many oysters like the oyster farmers can produce as much as we absolutely want
1: you know well that's something that i could uh get on board with
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think it's a no-brainer for me <laughs> well,
1: i want to explore what you're doing there with Steakhouse, but your career is so rich with so many experiences and take us back to when you were young what sort of role did food play in your family
0: uh, yeah, so uh, food was a big, big part of our house. Um, my grandma and my mom are both really, really good cooks. Like, no, like, coming from a Swedish kind of background and, and German background. Um, like, two, like, second generation up Canadian. Um, it's very different, right? So, it's all about the garden. Um, the garden was everything. My dad is an incredible gardener. Uh, we built a greenhouse we had many planter boxes and beds we had four acres and like I learned so much about food in those days and it was just deeply rooted in me (laughs) I guess and um, yeah and then it just kind of carried on from there.
1: When did you first sort of start to have an interest with a potential career in in hospitality?
0: (laughs) I'll be honest um, I wanted to be a Pro like sport was such a massive part of my life <laughs> and I wanted to be a pro snowboarder so I could, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I would work at night <laughs> and then snowboard during the day. So obviously like being a, like avid sports, like being on teams and stuff, being in a kitchen is a very similar kind of mentality and that's why I've always loved very big kitchens. Um, I've done very well in big kitchens. Um, so that just kind of, you know carried me through and obviously I wasn't crazy enough or loopy enough I took some pretty gnarly injuries and and I said well I'm pretty good at cooking so I'm gonna do that so it kind of chose me in a way you know
1: (laughs) tell us about your apprenticeship do you have any stories of of what it was like working in a commercial kitchen in the early days
0: yeah so in Calgary it's um it's a city of you know 1.2 million people I worked for some pretty amazing chefs Throughout my career, Uh, I was very, very lucky to kind of just get picked up as I went. I started in fast food, you know what I mean? When I was 15 and then it just kind of just up and and every other, every job was just like one step up, one step up, one step up, one step up all the way up. You know what I mean? And um, it's just like really natural and organic. And I think that that was, that's just how I've always just lived my life, you know? And um, so yeah, like, I guess apprenticeship, I went to school in SAITs. Uh, which was, I had two really influential chefs there, Simon Dunn. Um, and then I got to work at this restaurant called River Cafe, which is, they they were like owning Locavore, like well beyond well beyond anyone else was doing that. You know, like this is 12, 15 years ago, right? Right before that crazy craze. <coughs> and um, so I was doing that and they had a garden that was growing just for them. So I got to be the apprentice chef on the garden. Yeah, so like, it was just natural, you know, like all natural all the way. I got to pick the varieties of carrots that we used to plant and all the different beet roots. I knew so much about different varieties of beetroots and carrots and, and you know, lovage before lovage was the coolest, you know, <laughs> herb in the world. And like, I don't know, I was
1: pretty lucky. Many chefs uh, travel the world and do starges at, at restaurants. Has that been part of sort of your culinary journey?
0: Yeah, big time. I actually spent some time on a, a private yacht in Alaska, which is kind of where my <laughs> yeah, where where uh, my uh, love for seafood really, really sank in. Like, because I came from a a landlocked city, so um, I kind of got. Again, like, people referred me. I never really ever applied for jobs. I just kind of – people referred me, and I'd just kind of move on and um, just naturally went with it. And this experience was out of control, like, fishing for wild salmon and going diving for a sea urchin and, like – and I'd catch everything we serve. Um, yeah, like, halibut. Like, there's this, this – all these um, – we used to go prawning and, like, spot prawns and – in BC and in Alaska like you can't really travel they don't travel very well so you can you basically gotta eat them right there while they're still alive and um, they were the sweetest prawns you've ever had um, yeah and just the dungeness crabs and yeah I was obsessed <coughs> and then I guess from there um, I went to work into some, I went to work at a hotel, which was a great experience because it was a five diamond restaurant, which is, there's only two in Canada. Canada doesn't have Michelin yet, um, but diamonds are kind of like the top rating. And then from there I went, I did three years there, which was kind of during the molecular gastronomy time, um, which is so influential on so many people, I think. Um, especially my generation Um, and I didn't really take to it too much I was more about the ingredient my whole life Um, and then I went to 11 Madison Park for a little while which was pretty amazing experience they offered me a job but because of my Canadian citizenship it's kind of tricky to get a visa and at those days I didn't have much money for a maybe so (laughs) yeah, they offered me a job and I was kind of uh, I'm gonna kind of keep working where I can make money, <laughs> I have to pay off my school debts and stuff, and um, and then I just carried on. I went to South America for a while. I did a stage at Astur uh, Gaston, which is um, in Lima. It's like the restaurant that kind of trained the guys that opened Central, um, owning like the Amazonian ingredients and stuff like that. Well, that was that was a pretty amazing experience as well didn't understand the word they were saying because they speak like a really um, like strong dialect in kitchens, you know. It's very slang-driven, and um, especially in Peru, um, their Spanish is not like any other Spanish. So, <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: London is a rite of passage for many chefs. Did you head over to, to London and Europe at all?
0: Yeah, definitely I was lucky enough when we closed Aria and I was moving into the head chef position, um, Matt got me into some pretty amazing kitchens over there and uh, and and in Australia during the closure that they did the refurb. So, I went to um, restaurant Gordon Ramsay with Matt. Um, he's obviously ex-Aria and Aria alumni. Um, so that was a super amazing experience. Those guys work really hard over there. And the discipline is like nothing I've ever seen, um, pretty similar to 11 Madison and the discipline and the com- competition within the teams. Um, and then, um, and then I did Ledbury uh, with Brett and that was like the most creative place, you know, you could feel it in the air, which is like supernatural. I did clove club while I was there. That was, that was super cool. Cause those guys were just really up and coming and to come into a kitchen that's up and coming, not really one that's already established. It's like such a different feel. There's like a different kind of energy where they're like all working towards something. Like uh, they're all paddling the same direction, which is in my opinion, the most important part in any hospitality business. Um, and to really feel that energy there, I was like, I'm going to absorb as much as I can. And yeah, I was super lucky
1: to do that. You mentioned um, Aria briefly, but um, before we get to that, what led to the move to Australia?
0: Uh, I met a girl in, uh, in Canada, <laughs> as you do. Uh, Canadians and Australians, they really get on like it's such a similar culture. Uh, very outdoor driven, very sport driven, very um, relaxed. Sense of humor is... Pretty similar in a lot of ways. Lots of, um, you know, yeah, just really, really similar. So, uh, I ended up in Newcastle, and it's so funny. You've had uh, Tom and uh, Tom and um, Tim Montgomery on the show recently, and like I was at Bacchus because I I was ended up in Newcastle. <laughs> and, like it's so random how this is all happening again, and nice and organically. Um, yeah, and listening to them was just so good to hear from those guys, uh, even on the show. Uh, I was just there for a short time, and I just helped them out a bit here and there. I didn't really. Um, it was kind of near. I think it was kind of nearing the end of Bacchus um, when I arrived, but um, yeah, it was super special time. Like they were doing some amazing food, and they were really pushing the level there. Um, and that room is amazing. Like I like they talked about it as well, and but that room was like so so special. Um, yeah, amazing time.
1: Tell us about your time at at Aria and and with the Solitelle group. What, what was it like in those kitchens? Do you have some stories of of the experiences you had?
0: Yeah, the Arias, I think you had a couple of the boys on and and Laura on as well. And yeah, it was pretty pretty amazing time. Pretty pretty intense kitchen. It's the biggest service kitchen. I've been in other than Eleven Madison. I think like when we reopened ARIA the for the after the refit, there was like seventeen to eighteen chefs on a service. Um and like the units the unity that they needed to move was like it's yeah. I was so lucky to have my time there. Um, under Ben Turner as well. Like I learned so much from that guy and he's just a bit of a mentor to me um in so many ways. Like Outside of the kitchen and inside the kitchen, um, yeah, like Aria is a very intense kitchen, very very intense kitchen. And that was just kind of the tail end of the rough kind of side of kitchens uh, when I started, but it was still morsel so then. Um, yeah, there's some pretty pretty amazing people that have come out of that kitchen. You know what I mean? Like that that place harnessed. If you could handle the pressure, that place created diamonds.
1: You know what I mean. You ended up being head chef at, at B Restaurant. Um, tell us about that journey and and that sort of exploration of Australian ingredients that you went on.
0: Yeah, that was a great great experience under Corey, especially. Um, Corey is obviously one of. Yeah, again, a great friend and, and a mentor at the time because I'd moved from head chef at Aria to head chef at B, and um, which was, you know, like I probably wasn't ready for my position at Aria, which, um, you know, I'll own that. But, like, it was probably one of the quickest learning experiences I've ever had. I didn't really know what it meant to be a, a head chef. You kind of have to be a spear rather than a nurturer. I'd been a sous chef for so long that you're so used to being a nurturer and training and, and teaching. Whereas like a head chef, you kind of have to be a spear of the business, um, and pushing the business in a way, um, obviously still nurturing those around you, but in a different kind of way. Um, yeah. And then B, B was a, a really good time. Like that building is so beautiful. It's stunning. Um, and the working with Corey like learned a lot about like ants and and working with Australian produce that I'd never done before because I did quite a bit of foraging with Bacchus Boys and um but that was different you know they we were using crickets and we, we had a lot we had a lot of fun with the menu there prior yeah are
1: there uh, are there any dishes that kind of stand out with some really interesting ingredients from your time there at B
0: I think it was more like learning because, you know, Corey sees things so differently and because of his time at Vuittemont and his time at Noma and it was more like technique, like not not everything has to have onions and garlic, you know what I mean? Like that like French mentality of being trained that way your whole life, you're like, not everything has to do that. You can create flavor levels from so many other ways like how to cure tomatoes and using the glaze from that and oh man, like there's so many techniques that Corey taught me that I was like, wow, that's such a different way to look at things. And I think that that was so important for my creative um, path Um, and it really had a massive influence on me in like opening my eyes like everything should be questioned all the time, you know what I mean? Because you come from such a structured kitchen of Aria where everything is like that's the Aria way, you know what I mean? Whereas like now I look at things even at Stoke now that i put on and then i'm like oh now we're gonna change that you know what i mean like it's just you look at everything with fresh eyes all the time because the guest wants to look at things with fresh eyes and you always kind of have to put your you know guest hat on that was always something that i learned from um yeah yeah that was good
1: it was at b where you um got your first chef's hat um t- take us through the moment of, of what it was like receiving that
0: yeah, it was a pretty amazing experience. I remember when Terry and Jill came in and they came up to the kitchen with these big grins on their face and uh, like, and I was like, "Oh, did you enjoy everything?" And they had these big smiles and that was pretty amazing. Um, and also holding the two hats at Aria was a pretty big deal for me um, that first year. That was that was pretty amazing as well. So I was so lucky to have such a good team at both kitchens that were got really behind what I was, what I was doing. Um, team is everything. Okay. Team is everything.
1: How did the opportunity with Stokehouse come about?
0: Uh, I actually think it was when we got the hat at B, Frank read the review and then approached me, um, because we'd really pulled it back at B and we just, we made it about the guest, you know what I mean? Um, And he was really liked that direction because the kind of market in Barangaroo is very corporate and um, there's so many towers there that you kind of have to appease that kind of guest in a way. Um, So, we had to do things a bit smarter those days. Um, And then I think Frank really enjoyed that. He came, he called me. Well, he, he didn't call me, but a recruiter called me and said, there's a guy who's very well known in the industry that's looking for someone to take over and set a new direction and um, you want to meet him. And I said, yeah, like again, organically things things happen and, uh, and that was it. As soon as I met Frank, like he's, uh, I don't know if you've ever met Frank, but He's an amazing human. I've learned so much working with Frank, like so, so, so much. Just how to carry myself in certain situations. And yeah, he's he's an incredible human and he's done so much for the Melbourne dining scene. I had no idea about anything about Stokehouse when I moved to Melbourne as well. So I was asking everyone like, you you know and you sit in a cab or you sit in an Uber and you ask and like oh the Stuck House, my uncle's sister got married there or everyone has a story about it you know what I mean like every single person in this city has a story about Stockhouse and and like to take on that responsibility is something special
1: you know tell us about this influence that you're talking of that Frank's had and, and the changes that you've had in yourself what, what what's changed about your approach to what you do
0: I guess it's like the big thing for me when I came to Stoke House was getting buy-in because to take on a team that's so big, um, you have to get buy-in of the team, and that's like that should be number one priority. So, for example, what I did, I sat down with every key staff member on my first two weeks, uh, which is a lot of time, and I asked them ten questions of a survey. Um, like some of these questions were, you know, what's your favorite thing about working at Stokehouse? What's your least favorite thing about working at Stokehouse? You know, if you could change one thing, what is that thing? Tell me a story, you know, and like, and taking the time and, and giving them the opportunity to tell their story to me, um, I think was like, you know, such an influence. Cause when I met Frank, it was like. He could feel that energy. He wanted to hear what I had to say, and I was just like, "Oh, I want to take that and use that on the team." You know what I mean? And um, he really wanted, you know, he wants to take everyone's opinion. He always wants plenty of opinions, and then he makes a decision. You know, and I just, I really like that approach. Instead of just like grinding it out and just like, no, this is the direction. You know, like that's 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 gone. Those days are gone. You know, you need you need the team.
1: Yeah. You know. Tell us about the day to day with your job. How how do you get the most out of your team, and obviously for the guests as well.
0: Oh, I'm really lucky to have um, I have two head chefs underneath me. So I have uh, Brendan Anderson who runs the downstairs kitchen, and then um, who used to work in Stokehouse for a long time, and then Mark Wong who's the head chef mm. in Stokehouse, and then we have Ash Group Pacher who who moved down to work with me because we worked together at Aria. Um, and then we have EJ who also worked with me at B so Mm. there's been a few guys that kind of followed me down and I'm very fortunate to have that Um, and then the day-to-day like getting the most out of the team is you know empowering them you know and like constantly getting them to question what they're doing and how to get more out of themselves not something you know gone to the days is something like it still happens obviously but when someone screws up it's like why did that happen you know or questioning you know, how we can do it better, or having a conversation about it or a debrief. We have lots of debriefs all the time after bad services. And I think those are so important nowadays because the kind of younger generation that's coming up doesn't just want to grind out work. They want to work for a reason, mm. you know, and they want to work in, in a place that like harnesses their energy as well. Does
1: that make sense? Absolutely. Tell us about um, the creation of dishes in the Stoke House. Well, how, do, how does it work there? Does it start with you or is it collaborative? Or do you, and do you have some examples of dishes that speak of the Stokehouse?
0: House? Uh, yeah, definitely. We, um, a lot of things are collaborative, like in everything we do. It has to be because um, the team is too big. If I was to put on a, for example, if I was to put on a dish that, um, you know, that I did, and that no one was a part of. And then I would come back two days later because we, you know, everyone has days off and everyone has a good, you know, work-life balance. It's not 70, 80 hours a week where I'm there every service every day. Like I come back two days later and something's changed. Rather, we do the process together like a few times, often four or five times. We trial the dish because we are a busy restaurant. We've reduced the covers since I took over quite a bit. I used to do 220 cover services, which, you know, I'm comfortable with being at an Aria and being at B. Um, but I thought Stokos is such a special place that it should be, you know, a little bit more reduced. So we do 150s down and uh, really reducing and and adding the touches of, of plates um, and a bit more creative and a little bit more... You know, it's all produce-driven, and lots of people say that, and it's and it's and it's great. But we go and see the farms, and we go and see the fish farms and oyster farms, and all before anything goes on the menu. You know, because it's so important because we buy so much.
1: You know, tell us a bit about those producers. Do you have one or two that you can tell us about that you've formed connections with?
0: Yeah, plenty. Um, Romaro Farms is probably my favorite. Uh, garden. First time I went out there and I met Oliver, he's, he's ex hospitality and he worked for Andrew McConnell for a long time, I think. And as soon as I met him, it was like clicked. Um, and I uh, obviously started the dream of we exclusively want things grown for us, you know, and like all of that kind of stuff. But, uh, working with Oliver is amazing. And then Chloe at Somerset farms, uh, her produce is so um, natural and, and beautiful. Um, and then we have obviously a Kuna Murray cod, which we, we champion. It's a very sustainable fish and a, a farmed fish. Um, we always try to have, you know, one farm fish on the menu and then one wild fish, depending on what's sustainable and what's catchable or what's running or what have you. That kind of, those are the most important. Um, we also work with Flinders Meat Co. They're, um, the first carbon neutral meat company in the world, which is, you know again aligns with the five green star sustainability of our business I think super important um we have a on the menu which is like you know it's hit the market pretty hard, but it is on the menu and and like they're they're different they're interesting um and I do like them for their difference their point of difference some talking point but again super sustainable product um, yeah. It's plenty of others, but yeah,
1: there is a focus on sustainability with everything that you do. Has, has that been easy to or difficult to implement into the into the overall runnings of the business?
0: Uh, yeah, when I first started, I it's like the I think it was my first or second week. I just instantly banned cling film and takeaway containers. Um, like in, it's one of those things that you just kind of got to rip the Band-Aid off. Um, and just, man, you guys got to sort this out. You know what I mean? Um, and then, um, obviously, what they built, like, I don't think there's many businesses that are as lucky as Stokehouse to have to do a rebuild. Um, so, like, being able to put geothermal into the ground, repurposing wood to use for the dining room and the choir that's on the, on the outside that heat and cools the building and, you know, like... <laughs> solar power e-water um digester the the concrete uh the 20,000 liter tank of water that we collect for gray water like you know like there's how many businesses can can do that you know what I mean Uh, that that is a huge investment and that's like an investment into the future for others to follow you know not not just for our business but for everyone you know what I mean and I think that that's amazing that they've done that, you know what I mean? And that's why it was like didn't even question it. I was like, yeah, I'm coming. You
1: know, <laughs> I'm coming. Well, you are doing amazing things down there. It's such an iconic venue. What do you, what what do you love about what you do?
0: Um, well, well, first of all, like it's funny how I've just kind of worked at all these iconic iconic restaurants throughout the throughout my industry, my uh career and Um, being on the waters it's like something calming you know if you're having a bad day just look at the beach and it just calms you down Um, the team we have um, we're very lucky to have held such long-standing team members Um, working with the van handles working with Hugh Frank's son like we work very closely together uh, on the future of the business we have a bit of a three-year plan which is super exciting yeah, like I, I I love our our team and I love our our place of work. You know, it's it doesn't come without its challenges, of course. Um, working in a sustainable business is very challenging day to day. Sometimes you know lo- lots of things break, or you know so much extra maintenance and um, yeah. But no, we're we're very fortunate to be where we're at.
1: Well, Jason, congratulations on what you're building there and creating in such a a special venue. We've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Um, Please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon.
0: Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep.